Welcome to the Meditation Conversation. You are listening to Cara and Alessandra. Hello and thank you for joining. This is Kara and today I'm at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York and I'm here with Michael Kraft and I've come here for a weekend. I'm learning about healing medicine so I've come to a workshop where I'm learning with several different presenters and Michael was kind enough to meet with me to talk about the Omega Institute and also he just has a very interesting um, background that I think is helpful for people to understand. So we'll get into a little bit of everything. But let's start just by talking about the Omega Institute, if you don't mind. If you can just talk about... Um, I know that this weekend there are several different opportunities going on. I've talked to people who are here to learn about nutrition in regards to psychology, and I um, sat with somebody at dinner last night who was finishing up some yoga nidra training. I've met with people who are going on a silent retreat for a week. So there's a large breadth of things that are offered, and there are a ton of people here. (laughs) It's a very big institute and lots of diversity of offerings, and of course with that common thread of personal growth uh, going through everything. But can you just talk a bit about the history and kind of the mission and then your place in it? Oh, I'd be glad to. Thank you for having me. Um, So Omega is 41 years old. It's a 501c3 not-for-profit. Um, We um, have been in this campus since 1983, and in the years prior were a number of rented facilities for a seasonal program, and it's grown over the years. Uh, It's grown both in um, size and complexity as an organization, and it's also grown in terms of its reach and and its regards to content and theme. Um, We are mission-driven. We are nonpartisan. Uh, We explore uh, the best in the human spirit, uh, ranging from religion, traditional and non-traditional, all the way over to secular practice. Uh, One could find uh, uh, a rabbi, a Tibetan monk, and and, uh, uh, an atheist here at any one table at any time. Uh, We we are larger than our Rhinebeck campus. We do events in other cities and in Costa Rica. Uh, we do events annually in Manhattan, especially, or since we're two hours from Manhattan. Mm-hmm. But this campus has been our, our flagship for many years. And we have a, a program season here ranging from uh, beginning of May to the end of October every year. And to date, we've had over a million people come to this campus. Wow. So, so which, is, which is wonderful when you think about the investment in time people have to spend. Uh, time is a priority in these days, and it always has been uh, in these past several decades, but it's getting tighter and tighter. So we're always amazed and, and gratified to see people come for deep retreat. And we do, we are not specifically a retreat center. We're more of a conference center that does retreats. So there may be times when there's 600 people here in silence, and there may be times when there's uh, nine to 10 programs doing very noisy things, music, children, uh, different kinds of expressive arts. So we, we have a wide ranging curriculum. Um, 
we are in recent years especially focused on social transformation. We believe that it's not about a solitary practice only. There's a place in everybody's practice where one has to give back and where no matter how deeply we go into our internal experience, say as a meditator or a, as a yogi, uh, there's a point where one realizes that we're part of everything and that we have a responsibility. So we are very much involved and always have been in environmental work and sustainability work. Um, climate change is increasingly important to us. We work with a lot of educators. Uh, we're very much involved in the mindfulness and education uh, movement, which is really uh, transforming schools across the nation. Uh, we work with a lot of indigenous people, both with what we would consider a traditional uh, uh, indigenous spirituality program, but also programs that are more focused on activism, like indigenous land rights and restorative justice. We work with um, veterans, uh, and we do offer many retreats every year for veterans with trauma, and there's a variety of modalities we use. Uh, we also do a lot of women's work. Uh, our the Omega Women's Leadership Center is uh, world-renowned, and the kind of programs we do here might draw um, 10 people for a small classroom, to sit quietly and contemplate nature or nature drawing. Or we might have uh, former presidents and a number of Nobel laureates here, and we've done all those kinds of programs too. Omega is probably the most well-known wellness center in the United States. It's probably the largest nonprofit focused on holistic wellness and holistic education. Mm -hmm. I came here in 1983 as a volunteer. I've worked all over the campus physically. I, can, I know this very large place in the dark very well, but I also have been involved in our curriculum for many years and I develop a lot of our conferences and programs, specifically on uh, sustainability and the environment, on mindfulness and education, uh, with veterans and trauma, and uh, also I work closely with the Women's Leadership Center and I work with a lot of the old-time um, popular spiritual leaders such as Eckhart Tolle, Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson. Um, Ajashanti, uh, Pema Chodron, many of those teachers I've worked with over the years, and I'm especially close to John Kabat-Zinn and Eckhart Tolle's work. That's where my heart lies. Wonderful. And you mentioned um, that service is an important part as well, and you have a service program here also, right? Where, am I right, thinking there are 200 we do. We have, I, when you say service, I, a number of lights go off because yeah. service is close to our core ethic. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll probably hit all those dimensions right now. Uh, in terms of our staffing, because we have a seasonal program model here, the campus is, the housing is seasonal. Our offices are year-round, so we have about 80 year-round staff who do the program development, like myself, um, do the finance, do the, the web, uh, IT, our registration, our marketing team, maintenance. That's about 80 people, all told, for this, this size place. Um, we, in the summer, in the spring through fall, really, we have another 200 to 250 volunteers who come here as our service corps. Um, they are seasonal staff, and they come for any, anywhere from two to six months. And they are here for that period. We have a whole curriculum designed just for them, uh, a wide variety. It's not one specific topic. And uh, service is, is our ethic. And, and was that, did I hear correctly, that Ramdas was part of the original uh, foundation? He was. He taught, here, he taught here for many, many years. 
Uh, he and a number of other spiritual teachers. Uh, originally, Omega was founded by students of the Sufi teacher uh, Pir Vilayat Nai Khan. And Pir Vilayat uh, taught here also. He was uh, very much about interfaith dialogue and a very diverse practice background. So in his case, uh, he was bringing different religious and spiritual traditions together. That was his, his motif, his, mm-hmm. his, his, his core uh, mission in some ways. Uh, he also was really um, looking at an evolutionary consciousness and uh, a way of bringing the earth, the peoples of the earth closer together. And he was inspired by uh, Tehar de Chardin and uh, the co-founders of Omega, Elizabeth Lesser and Stefan Rechthofen, students of his, uh, were very inspired by Pierre Belayat. And Pierre Belayat suggested the name of Omega Institute based on uh, Tehar de Chardin's Omega Point, the point at which all human consciousness reaches a, a singularity where there's a oneness mm-hmm. and, and we cease to war on ourselves or on the environment. So that's, a, that's still a, an aspiration of ours, and that's where our name comes from. Um, Ramdas was involved in those days too. Ramdas is extremely focused, even to, to this day. He's he's still, he's still alive, and he's he's uh, very retiring, and he speaks very slowly, and he has a lot of a lot of lovers from all over the planet that just mm-hmm. come to him and listen to him in Mali, where he lives, yeah. and we we live stream with him whenever we can. Oh, but in those days, he worked with our staff, and he would uh, do retreats with our staff, and his his. His approach was he'd sit down to people and say, oh, you're going to clean toilets, you're going to wash dishes, you're going to wait on people at the counter. What an opportunity. How lucky that we've created a place where you can train to do this. All those guests, they're just here to help you learn how to do service, selfless service. And we called it karma yoga in those days. Um, Times have changed. We don't use that kind of language anymore, but it's the same spirit. Mm, Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, thank you for the overview of Omega Institute. And before we move off that topic, you have a new podcast. Omega has a podcast, um, Dropping In, it's called. And so that might be a great launching point for somebody who's wanting to know more about the Omega Institute or, you know, kind of get a sense of what it's about. Um, But maybe like myself, it would require a plane ride to get here. Um, but it's a great way to learn more. There's a wonderful vibration here, and I would highly recommend anybody coming and, you know, enhancing their own personal journey with a visit in person. But if this institute is new to you, I'd recommend checking out the new podcast and using that as a stepping stone into the world of Omega Institute. Um... So if you can, talk about your own journey, because you have, um, it was interesting when we were talking yesterday and your background, uh, you have a lot of Tai Chi and Qigong and um, shamanism, and you have an energetically diverse interest group. (laughs) And I found it interesting when we talked yesterday because you were almost hesitant to ascribe like energy to it. So I guess just maybe we'll do some foundational level setting if you'd like in case there are new areas for anyone and kind of how they've weaved through your life and how they appeared in the first place. 
Um, so I'll start by talking specifically about Tai Chi and Qigong since you mentioned that. Um, I first encountered those practices in the early 1980s, so I've been practicing Tai Chi and Qigong since then. And a little later, I, I got into Bagua, Bagua Zhang, which is also a similar art. It uh, looks like Tai Chi, but it's turning circles a lot, really. It's walking mm -hmm. a circle. Um, these, these, both these arts are rooted in the, the, the Chinese cultural ethic that is a spectrum from Chinese medicine all the way to Taoist spirituality, Taoist Buddhist, Buddhist spirituality, uh, very influenced by nature. And um, Tai Chi specifically is a, got a history as a martial art. Uh, in, in Chinese martial arts, there are so-called internal arts as opposed to external arts. Uh, Western-style bo boxing would be an external art. Mm -hmm. uh, the person who's usually tougher, stronger, faster wins often mm -hmm. in boxing because it's an endurance test and it's about force. And uh, Tai Chi is not like that. You would not see uh, uh, a 70-year-old man practicing uh, Western-style boxing at Madison Square Gardens. That doesn't make any sense. It's, right. You would expect to see a young man doing that, or a young person, a young woman doing that, because that's based on external strength, and that's a strength that we all have to one degree or another, but it leaves us all with age. Internal strength is, is, is a nice opposite of that. It's, that's based on uh, understanding of body mechanics, of poise, of personal uh, mind-body awareness, and um, you might often see a 70-year-old man or a woman practicing Tai Chi, even in self-defense. So is there's it? a different model entirely. Okay, so is it using the meridians the way that acupuncture does? Certain Tai Chi teachers that do, but it's not, it's not a foundation of the practice. Qigong, which is related to Tai Chi, is, uh, often does use meridians, but there are Qigong schools that don't. Just as there are a thousand ver variants on yoga, mm -hmm. even though, and even the yoga that most of us know in the West only descends from a certain few lineages that came to the West. There are so many forms of yogas outside of Hatha yoga that we know. Mm -hmm. And uh, Qigong is like that. It's a very big tent. So there is temple-style Qigong. There is secular-style Qigong. There is Qigong for scholars, for people with illness. There are Qigong practices that develop psychic abilities. And there are Qigong practices in the main that are good for health, uh, for longevity, uh, for uh, working with uh, keeping a body free of cancer or other illnesses. Mm -hmm. And... Those are the most commonly known ones, and some of those, not all, but some of those rely on a knowledge of uh, acupuncture meridians. Okay. Tai Chi has many crossovers with Qigong. It works with many, much of the same awareness. And if, you, if one goes to study Tai Chi, you'll find that often Qigong practices are used as beginning practices, as warm-ups, and also as advanced training for Tai Chi practitioners. But Tai Chi has its own separate forms as well. Okay. And lastly, uh, on Tai Chi and Qigong, just because of, of language mm -hmm. for us Westerners, the Tai Chi Chuan is not the same Qi as the Qi Gong. So Qi Gong basically means energy work. Qi, energy, or breath energy. Gong means work, like mastery, uh, the mastered work. Tai Chi Chuan, Chuan means uh, form, boxing form. Uh, tai Chi is the name of the yin-yang symbol. So oh, it's a boxing right. form named after the yin-yang symbol. You might be calling it yin-yang boxing. That is really a translation of, or grand ultimate, because that's the name of the principle. Grand ultimate, the yin-yang is the grand ultimate. Grand ultimate boxing. That's a translation of Tai Chi Chuan. Oh, so Qigong means energy work. Oh, okay. So what brought you into that world? You said it was in the 80s that you started practicing? Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's the times. Maybe it's... 
things that happened to me as a kid, who knows, but I always had a taste for these sort of trainings, which in those days, uh, I mean, I was a child in the 70s. Uh, those things were very far and few between. It was hard to find. Uh, if you could walk into our bookstore now, 95% uh, of those books have been written since the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So there, uh, there's a, a flowering of that. I often wonder why people, if people don't know how much we've, we've, we have at our fingertips now that we used not to, let alone the internet. Right. But in those days, uh, it was very mysterious, and there were very few t people teaching it. I was already studying uh, Bando Karate, uh, Zen Buddhism, and, uh, and yoga. And I thought, this is hard to do all these practices. And I was doing them a lot, hours a day. And then I heard of Tai Chi that might, Tai Chi and Qigong seem to be related arts that might help me refine that practice and, to, and condense it. So I sought out teachers. Uh, so you've had a very... Um an attraction to Eastern philosophy and exercise, did that just appear? Well, that's what I was doing in university. I was studying oh, uh, really? uh, um, Asian philosophy as well as psychology, okay. and I had a double major, and um, Tai Chi was very helpful at that time. That's also when I began studying Buddhism, I mean, actually before that with Zen, but I moved over to Tibetan practice in, uh, um, in the early 80s, and I've been practicing those arts and studies ever since. But in my work at Omega, I've also been able to fulfill some of my other interests. I've had uh, wonderful opportunities over the past 30, 35 years to work with a number of indigenous people. Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned shamanism. We've been bringing many shamanic teachers here over the years. It's actually very interesting in this time. It, it comes up for us daily. Uh, we're not isolated from the issues of the world. And we are very careful about issues like cultural appropriation. You know, the fact that where one comes down, I'm speaking for myself now, not for Omega, not to get anybody in trouble, mm -hmm. but when there are many indigenous teachers out there teaching people of all cultures and races because they want to share their work, you being, one being a receptacle for that, one being willing to be a practitioner of that under these teachers does not make one do, is not cultural appropriation. If an East, if a, an East Indian yogi comes here and teaches us and we practice his art, that do, or her art, it doesn't mean that we are um, seizing those opportunities for ourselves. However, when people start to make money from these things or commercialize them, it gets very sticky. Mm -hmm. So we are very careful to have people only in correct lineages in that. Now myself, I have been authorized to teach Tai Chi and Qigong and uh, Buddhist mindfulness practice. I'm not teaching um, Vajrayana or Dzogchen, even though I've studied that for now 35 years, I'm not an authorized teacher of those arts, so I don't do that. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of great teachers out there. But one of the things that Omega excels in is finding the absolute best teachers to bring here for a wider audience. Mm -hmm. um, actually, speaking of the 1980s, just to refer us back to really ancient times, there was a period here in the late 80s where we had to make a decision about our direction. And there was a lot going on, and even though we knew we wanted to do healing arts, alternative spirituality, as it was called in those days, uh, world contemplative practices, uh, be a forum for indigenous work, we had to decide, were we going to be a, a retreat center looking inward, or were we going to be more of an outward-looking conference center, and that, how would that impact these practices and, and our sharing of them? And we decided that we were going to be a place where the mainstream could find uh, a trusted brand in all these things where we would do the vetting we would have we would find people that were skilled and and we would translate that work for them a lot so we have been really looking for the teachers who are 
really at a world level who can, who can teach about Buddhist, Christian, Taoist, Hindu, Muslim, uh, indigenous uh, traditions or modern spiritual traditions with no reference to religion. Uh, people who can teach about a sustainable lifestyle, a green economy, uh, mm-hmm. um, how to deal with personal as well as collective trauma, how to deal with an empowered uh, partnership society no longer based on dominator models. And sometimes we make mistakes, but we've learned a lot. And, and bringing it back to me, since you wanted to ask about my life, I, mm-hmm. it's been exciting to have the opportunity to work so closely face-to-face with these teachers oh, for I all imagine. these years. It's, yeah. it's really why I came here. I came here following different teachers, mm-hmm. and then I found myself helping out and producing programs and eventually producing them a lot. So mm-hmm. that's what I do. I'm, it's, it's interesting because... I think a lot, maybe it's a function of my current age, but I think a lot about uh, liminal states, uh, bardo realms, uh, you might say, in Tibetan Buddhism, places of in-between. And we are now, as a globe, in an in-between place. And it's, it's ironic now that the work of Omega, which has been for years to help people explore their own in-between spaces, is now so relevant to a wider audience mm-hmm. because all of us are in in-betweens right now. And our, our old social institutions are disintegrating and, and no longer function. So we're in, we're in between as a society as well. We're in between with the climate. What path shall we take? Even though there's, it's very clear that where the science is going, we haven't, not everybody has bought in. There's no unity of purpose yet. So we are more and more trying to be a place that brings a lot of in-betweens together in the same room because there's an intersection between the inner and the outer, the personal and the collective. And that's a big part of what we're doing. And I think speaking for myself, but also for a number of the co-staff I work with, there's a, there's a very strong um, commitment to practice here. And I think that, I say that honestly in humility, we, we, we don't know what we're doing. I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> but we're trying. And we know enough to try to, we know enough to learn to listen now. And it's taken us many years to get to that place where we can listen very effectively. And I, I just want to give a bow of gratitude to the great teachers here and also to uh, our founders, Stefan Rekshoffen and Elizabeth Lesser. Elizabeth Lesser, who's the author of Broken Open and a number of other books, she's very involved with us on a, really on a, on a long-term basis. She is driving and leading our curriculum in a direction that is really focused on global healing. Yeah, that's really beautiful with um, everything that Omega is able to offer and the, the teachers. And, um, and I'm certainly grateful for all of, all of that as a uh, um, retreat guest at the moment because um, I've been very, very impressed with the, the curriculum so far of my own program that I'm involved in. So, so bravo. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so it's interesting, you've alluded to your, your childhood and how, um, because you, you speak quite naturally about, yeah, well, when I, in the, you know, the eighties, when I was in university, I studied Eastern philosophy and Eastern studies as though everybody was doing that, (laughs) which, which may not have been the case, but what, uh, what was going on in your childhood that led you down this this path of the Eastern traditions and your curiosity with spiritual development, but that openness and that broadness. Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll do my best. It's, 
it's a little bit out there, but <laughs> and, and which I find fascinating. Okay, so, so I had a difficult uh, early childhood. Uh, loving mother, uh, stable environment in some ways, but uh, very uh, experienced a lot of violence, including some sexual violence as a as a as a boy, and uh, it was a very difficult time. And possibly for that, I, I, this is why I'm so fascinated by stories of shamans who usually find their path through an illness or a wound. Yeah. Um, I started to have a lot of visions. And I was having visions of mythological deities. I, I didn't know it at the time. And uh, nature spirits, uh, uh, religious images. Uh, sometimes they would fill the sky and sometimes they would just fill my dreams. But and this was, was as a young boy. This was as a very young, this was as a young, really started about age seven or eight. And um, I became very uh, introverted. Uh, I still think I, I consider myself an introvert by nature. Mm. I talk a lot, but that was a, a long process to mm. learn to do that. Um, and so I sometimes fail, but uh, sometimes a lot, I fail a lot. But I really, uh, that's been part of my journey is to learn how to express myself in public and in a group. Um, Anyway, uh, as a child, I was very extremely inward, and uh, some of that was from my wounding, some of that was from whatever was going on with this contemplative dimension or imaginal dimension, and uh, I started reading a lot, and I, st I remain and have been for many decades a, a dedicated reader. I'm probably uh, Omega's most bookish person, so I do a lot of our R&D for, for the whole organization as well. I share a lot with others. but. In those days, I was very inward, and I remember I was um, when I was at age thirteen. This was in Baltimore. I lived in uh, in a small suburb on the outskirts of Baltimore, and I was in the second story of a house with a uh, very thick walls, uh, thick plaster walls, an old bungalow-style house, and the windows were shut. But it was in the evening; sun was still up somewhere. But there was a terrible thunderstorm in the distance, and I remember. Uh, doing a meditation, this is a, this is a true story, doing a meditation on, um, on uh, nature spirits and uh, the elements, and uh, a huge bolt of lightning hit the house. No way. And where my hands were on the wall was now, the next day, uh, an enormous hole through a foot-thick wall. Wow. And that went through me. Um, and where I had been standing in my bare feet were now burn marks. So I really oh channeled goodness. a lightning bolt. Wow. Uh, the stereo in the room blew up and uh, there were burns and um, I was picked up and spun around. My arm went through the window so I had to get stitches then, then, that oh my night. Goodness. But um, there was no fire. So everybody downstairs, my family, said, wow, that was close, but they didn't smell any burning. Oh. Other than you had to be close up to the floor upstairs to smell that. And meanwhile, I was thrown to the floor and um, it all went white and then uh, like white light. And then when I came to, I was lying here and over there was my body. And I was out of my body and I knew something was wrong. And so it was a near death experience, wow. but it wasn't my time. And let's see, I remember thinking something, I, I, I wasn't really forming words. I felt that something was wrong and that I had to get back in. And it wasn't like a classical near-death experience where there was a tunnel of light and somebody was there to help me. Nobody was there. Nobody was it there. Was, that was it was my a question. big mistake. It was a glitch in the matrix. Wow. And um, I found I don't know how I don't know what I was 
I don't know what body or vehicle I was in, but my subjective experience was moving over to the top of my head and forcing myself back into what was a cold and stiff body. You're kidding me. And that body was ice cold. And when I got in that body, wow. it could not move. And it was an agony of pins and needles. And I lay there, I think now, it seemed like forever, but I know now it was about an hour. And finally, I could start moving my head and jaw, and it was a struggle. And so you were consciously aware of being in your lifeless body and trying to I, animate if it. it was, that's what somebody might say. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, who knows? It was subjective. It, for wow. all I know, the heart was beating slowly, and everything was fine. It was just pins and needles. But this is what I experienced. Yeah, right. And uh, then I could start going, help, help, and nobody heard me. So finally, I was able to move a little bit, and I ended up crawling down flights of stairs to where people were downstairs, and they took me to the hospital, and they gave me stitches for the cut in my arm, and I started to snap back, and at the hospital, I was a kid, they gave me ginger ale, that's what mm -hmm. they did, and uh, no other treatment other than my stitches, and uh, that was a change in my life. And one doesn't go through an experience like that without some profound change, and right. that is still a vivid experience for me. And, and you had I had found myself less. Before. Yeah, I did. But this this actually changed. Uh, in some ways, I became more outward looking than before. It was like something picked me up and shook me and said, mm. "Okay, stop just dwelling on these visions and and inner things and start noticing the world around you." So mm. I became. It, 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 ultimately, it helped me become more socially emotion and emotionally intelligent. Social emotional mm -hmm. intelligence came out of that experience. Really? So it wasn't something that it, it wasn't that I was you know I was a young I was a boy so it wasn't that I had to face mortality. Mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't thinking about those kind of things. It, I, if there was a meaning in it, and I've looked for meaning for years, the meaning was something turned me around. I was spun around. Metaphorically, as well as as well as literally, and well, it seems it as though you were already um, connected with some sort of outer spiritual realm before that. So it's almost like it it embodied you or or it, like grounded true. you a bit. You Very know? much. That's what it did. It it drove me more into embodiment. Into the body, yeah. yeah. So hmm. so that was an important experience. Uh, after that, I started. I meet. I within even though I was young, I started, and it was. It was the 80s, for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. I was able to find teachers who were practicing yoga. Mm -hmm. I was reading voraciously. I was studying comparative mythology to try to interpret these images. And um, over the years, I became uh, fascinated with Buddhist practice, but also with science. I got very involved in uh, the, uh, many of the teachers and projects that are, that are doing such great work now uh, Exploring consciousness in terms of neuroscience. And so I, I'm, like I'm a layman, so I yeah, quantum quantum theory as well. That was something very popular here, but it's interesting. That's all coming back around now because there's such a debate between the 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 nature of consciousness mm -hmm. between the the neuroscience community and the and the physics community. If you want to talk about non-local consciousness and the sense that consciousness and awareness may exist, may pre-exist the body and may exist outside that. You want to talk with physicists nowadays. Mm. You talk to neuroscientists, and they're very clear. There's a tremendous amount of evidence-based research that shows the mechanics of perception and awareness coming out of our hardwiring. Mm. So it's an interesting debate that still continues to this day. And the mindfulness movement, of course, has embraced uh, neuroscience so much because it's 
not only has it verified many of the, the impulses in mindfulness practice, but it's endorsed it. It's provided legitimacy to bring these things into schools. And so we now have schools that have been having terrible trouble with kids and, and peer pressure and gang violence and drugs and and just a loss of a lack of meaning and and impulse control, all these things, and mindfulness practice and yoga practice to a degree are now in these schools because of the neuroscience backing it up. Mm-hmm. The, the conversation with, um, with the physicists about the nature of consciousness continues on, of course, and, yeah. and, and one could always check out Mind Life. You know, the Mind Life Institute is, is doing amazing work with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and many other teachers around that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, those teachers inspired me, and because of those kinds of experiences I had, I became very interested in a, in a, in a wide range, uh, the whole spectrum from what we would call spiritual practice, practicing with others as well as oneself, all the way over to paranormal. And uh, I worked on the paranormal um, material a lot and wrote a book about uh, aliens. I saw And that. I uh, have worked with other people on uh, writing around uh, ghost phenomenon and uh, really kind of... Uh, what I'm going to call Fortean phenomena, parapsychology. But eventually in my own life, that led me back to uh, spirituality. And there's a certain point where this kind of phenomena is, is fascinating. What it tells us about our consciousness and about the world at large is, is amazing. And yet it, I'm in the place in my life, uh, and possibly because of Omega's influence, um, that I ask, to what purpose? Why are we investing time and energy in these things? And increasingly I'm focused on practices that give us more life force, more prana, to use mm. a yoga term, more, more chi. Mm-hmm. And you, um, this is a long way of coming back around to uh, how do I talk about energy mm-hmm. when I teach Tai Chi or Qigong? Because I'm a Buddhist practitioner as well. I tend to think more about awareness uh, than I do about an intangible energy. Okay. And so the word energy is hard. If we were talking about chi in Chinese medicine, that's very specific. That's, mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's bioelectricity. We okay. would call that the, 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 that little field of force that all living cells have, all organs have. You have it now. If you didn't have it, you wouldn't be alive. Mm-hmm. And that's almost measure, that's measurable in a number of ways. You can measure that, that bioelectricity in a, in, a, in a lab, in a living cell. And there's... Qigong and, th- and Chinese medicine in general use that awareness uh, very much so, and it's interesting now that you know you can get your insurer to support acupuncture because now they're able to measure it in a lab and mm. so, so on and so forth. So Western science has endorsed a lot of those those theories, but talking in a in a contemplative or a workshop environment here, people use the word energy in many ways, and it can be very vague. Energy can be oil. Energy can be the economy. Energy can be how you feel when you wake up. Energy can be chi and bioelectricity. So I like to talk about awareness and uh, sensation when I teach Tai Chi specifically. And in the course of that, we do practices that are designed to cultivate life force, that kind of energy. And we're very specific about what that is and what it isn't. And of course, in Tai Chi, they've always said the chi goes where the mind goes or the intention goes. And so there's a, there's a place where life force does seem, appear to be enhanced uh, based on our awareness of practice. Mm-hmm. And the reason we have a practice is because it's cumulative. And so you can actually heal from these kind of practices. Or you can, you can create more energy to do more, to accomplish more in your life. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm all about that. And I, these practices are 
famous as arts of longevity, back to the old internal, external martial arts thing. Mm -hmm. The internal martial artists are famous for having long, healthy practice lives. If I was a Western-style boxer, and that's great as a sport, not knocking it, but there'd be a point in my life where I couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And actually, would probably, if, when I got old, it would be, it would be harmful to try to do it. Mm -hmm. However, soft-style boxing, internal-style martial arts, that's a whole other thing, and that can enhance my life force and, and in many ways make me a better person because the practices that are inherent to internal-style martial arts are meditative. They, they, cultivate, they give us, to use the language that we use in mindfulness training, they give us greater self-regulation, stronger executive function, uh, a stronger ability to invoke a relaxation response, greater mind-body integrity. So those are, those are life skills. Are they focusing um, at the, in the prefrontal cortex while you're doing the... Um... Well, not necessarily. You might, instead, I might say, uh, while you're moving, okay, in general, I'd say start moving slowly. Mm -hmm. Move so slowly you're aware of every moment. Move, move even slower than that. The reason we move slowly in, tai, in many Tai Chi practices is to increase awareness. As a martial art, Tai Chi is practiced quickly too. People mm -hmm. often don't know that. It's, it wouldn't be effective otherwise. But the slow practice is meditation in motion. Right. And so just like we could sit on a Zafu and with your legs crossed and be meditating or sitting in a regular chair... There's standing and moving meditation in Tai Chi. It's still meditation. And because it's keeping your awareness, it's keeping your awareness. centered. And now, now, to answer your question, to do that actually increases activity in the prefrontal cortex. Mm. But I wouldn't be necessarily focusing. Like, okay. like I'm not saying put your attention in, the, the in, your, in, the, in your third eye or anything. Yeah. Sometimes there's problems with that. Mm. You know, you don't want to... And Qigong especially, they're very clear about what they call kundalini casualties. That, oh, really? That, uh, people that have tried to do that work unskillfully can hurt themselves. You can get mm. headaches. You can cause uh, emotional, emotional yeah. disturbances. You can actually, uh, again, in, in Chinese medicine, the theory of cancer, which is one of our most commonplace diseases nowadays, the theory of cancer is based on blockages to the flow of qi. So you don't want to do something that drives qi, in, using that language, to drive, to drive awareness mm -hmm. into a one spot exclusive, exclusive of others. So Tai Chi, for example, is a great, is a great example of, of doing an activity that supports prefrontal or neuro or neurological development, mm. and also other kinds too. Qi, qigong and Tai Chi also don't focus only on the brain. There's mm. a there's a whole set of systems that that are in our gut, for yeah. example, and we move from our gut literally in Tai mm. Chi. We move from literally the the middle of your body is your moving center, and we move from that. And eventually, there's an instinctual feeling. So many people have written about gut feeling yeah. and gut sense and there's now the a number gut of brain now. yeah and there's there's science to back up some mm -hmm. of the intuitions we experience and, and and from from the gut it's almost like i mean there's a nerve plexi down there and, and, and that has its own intelligence so we cultivate that in these kind of practices and are you so you're not just focused at the spiritual eye are you focused on the, the spine, like where the chakras would be in the yogic sense? Or is it just really about that energy moving completely in the body and you're following where? I would say that speaking for tai, in the world of Tai Chi, mm -hmm. it's only the latter. Okay. It's not, um, you're not, trying not to focusing on chakras or yeah. higher energetic states. 
in some schools of Qigong, which again, which interpenetrate with Tai Chi, mm-hmm. you could be a Tai Chi practitioner that finds these things coming to you in your study of Qigong. There are practices with energy centers and that sort of thing. Certainly in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a great deal of that. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a plethora of those kind of practices, but they work at a different level. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on the tradition that you're focused on. So we're, right now we're talking about three different traditions, you know, mm-hmm. Tibetan Buddhism, Tai Chi, and Qigong. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting, Tibetan Buddhism is, of course, rooted in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So it has, there's a whole element of the Buddha Dharma, the wisdom of Buddhist teachings that is in there. They often refer to practices like Tai Chi and Qigong as empty practices. Because uh-huh. here you are spending all this time doing an energetic meditation, but you're not using that to also become more compassionate and wise. Oh, so they have an added philosophical development mm-hmm. in, in, in dimension in that, in that system. Okay. I'm not judging one against another, but they, they definitely have differences. Yeah, of course. Right. Well, I want to be respectful of your yes. time, uh, but I so appreciate your time oh. and your wisdom and sharing about these, um, these fascinating areas of, of Tai Chi and Qi and Qigong, 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 and sharing openly about your, your past and your path. I really appreciate it. I think there's so much that people, um, garner from learning about how other people have gotten to where they have gotten when they, they've opened to higher things the way that you have. So, well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. And I hope others among your listeners check us out too. I think they will. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And so again, that was Michael Kraft with Omega Institute and just another thank you to him. He was such a kind soul. We'd actually had some problems, some technical problems the first time we tried to record. So we had to meet again and he was so accommodating and um, generous. And um, so it was, it was such a nice experience. And my weekend in Omega was very um, fulfilling. And again, I just really, um, I just really recommend if you get the chance, go check it out. They constantly have a lot of very high quality programs going on. Um, So if you go and look at what's being offered at any given time, there are several different options to choose from with some very high caliber um, presenters and, um, and events. So go take a look. We'll post the, um, the website so that you can go and check it out and just make a, a weekend of it. I had a healing, um, body work session. They've got tons of body work, massage and Reiki and, um, gosh, I mean, you name it, there was just, there, the body work options were, the list just went on. I was almost overwhelmed trying to figure out what I should um, choose. And so it's just a very, very beautiful healing weekend. Um, and so thank you for joining us on the meditation conversation. Please help us to grow Um, help us by downloading or subscribing, rating, reviewing. Again, all of that just helps us um, 
to broaden our reach and help more souls. And um, sharing is another great way to do that. So all of those just take a couple of moments and we are so grateful for that time that you can offer. So thank you very much for, for tuning in and we look forward to the next meditation conversation.